0: thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. We hope that you are encouraged by these messages and that God will continue to bless you. And now, today's sermon. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 10 as we continue our our look at uh, what I call songs that we need to sing, which are the Psalms. We're several weeks into our study of the Psalms, We've probably done, I think, six of them at this point, maybe. And uh, Chaplain Holmes last week, I believe, uh, preached out of uh, Psalm chapter 88. Today we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm chapter 110. Uh, this psalm is what some refer to as a, as a royal psalm. To look at this psalm in its, in its entirety, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to look at a lot of Scripture today. So what I've done is on the on the screen, I'm going to give you all the scripture references that we're going to be looking at. This psalm, if you didn't know, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's the most quoted. In the New Testament, verse 1, for example, is quoted verbatim or alluded to at least 25 times. Verse 4 is quoted quoted at least five times with the theme of verse four popping through everywhere. We're going to see this mysterious man named Melchizedek. I haven't ever met anyone named Melchizedek and there's very little said in the Bible about Melchizedek, but he's very important. We're going to look at that. There's going to be a war story where Abraham Abraham has to go and rescue Lot and he takes 320 people and he attacks them. So there's there's like a a mission here. So we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to go to the New Testament and see how all this applies to this psalm that David originally wrote in Psalm 110. We're sort of like those people who you watch that movie that you know very well and you could you can quote it and you can memorize it. I'm not real interested in a new movie. I'm, I, I want to watch a movie that I can pretty much quote all the way through and I'll watch the same movie over and over again. That's just what I do. My wife, why do you do that? Why do you keep, cause I know what's going to happen. I just like to know what's coming on David's side. When he wrote this, there was a lot of mystery. There was a lot of what does all this mean? I can only imagine as he wrote it in many ways, it's prophetic. He had to be wondering, and the people of the time, well, who is the Lord said to my Lord? Who is this Melchizedek? What does all this mean? One author put it this way. He said the great assurances of this psalm fell deep into the well of time until they finally plunged into the waters of the New Testament. When we look at the New Testament, we look at this whole thing, we're, sort of, we're seeing the whole movie. We know how it's going to end. To do that, I think it's going to be worthwhile to unpack this entire psalm. So let's read it together. Psalm chapter 110. I'm going to begin in verse 1. And I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. We're going to flip a lot of places. And if you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, you'll have an opportunity to do that as we go. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, some translations say shatter heads, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the bay, therefore he will lift up his head. I believe that as you look at this passage, it's really two parts, and you kind of see them. Christ as the king, and I'm going to go ahead and say Christ, because as we're going to see, and just as we unfold this, it's talking about Jesus, like a lot of times scripture does, right, even in the Old Testament. We're going to see the Christ as the king, and then we're going to see Christ as the priest. The first point is Christ as the king, and if you'll go ahead and go to that next slide, I want to show you this, and you can see all those, all those scriptures. Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, is how it starts. I want you to notice in your Bibles the way it's worded. It's the Lord all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, says to my Lord, just capital L and then lowercase. The first Lord is Jehovah. He's saying the Lord, the God of the Bible, the God that David worships. He says that Lord is saying to my Lord. Well, who's the my? It's David. David is saying to to, to the reader, the Lord, the God, God himself, is saying to whoever this Lord is of David. We know the answer to who he's talking about when we go to the New Testament. So I invite you, you'll see the, the text on the screen. I'll share two of them with you, Mark twelve thirty-five. But if you want to turn there, I'm going to read it out of Matthew twenty-two forty-one, 41. Or I'll simply read it to you. As you know, many times in the Gospels, different Gospels will give you the same story, right? There's... Feeding of the 5,000, for example, is in all four. Well, this is a story that's in three of the Gospels. I'm going to read it out of Matthew. Jesus was asked, he was talking to uh, the Pharisees about what the greatest commandment is. And probably some of you remember what his answer was. It was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's going on in Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to begin reading to you in verse 41. And Jesus is going to quote Psalm 110. So listen to this. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked him a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. Now, traditionally, the the text and the scribes and the Pharisees would have thought that the Messiah would come from from the line of David. So that's their answer. But Jesus takes that and turns it on them in verse 43. He said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit, which by the way, Jesus is saying something there. When he says David in the spirit, he's saying that this is not just David writing some words on a page. He's alluding to the fact that David through the Holy Spirit is writing God's word. How did David in the spirit call him Lord? So he's saying, well, if he's the son of David, how is, how is the son of David? How does David call this man Lord? He says, then he quotes, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. Verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer a word, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. That was it. Done. Drop the mic. Because Jesus gave them the answer And I believe they knew the answer. They knew that he was saying that he was that Lord. When David said, the Lord said to my Lord, the my Lord is the Messiah. And the Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ. I want to share a couple other verses with you. We won't turn to all these, but I just want to read a few of them to you to kind of help paint this picture. If you look at Mark 14, verse 62, Jesus They asked him if he was the Christ. Pilate said, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. This idea of you're going to be at the right hand. Acts chapter 2, when uh, Peter was preaching at Pentecost, Peter said it this way. Peter said, David did not ascend to heaven, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies. In other words, Peter's saying, it wasn't David that went back to heaven, but David was talking about this same Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talked about the resurrection, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, and I think I put all this on the, I did on the screen for you, for he must reign, that is Jesus must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. In Ephesians chapter 1 it says, uh, Paul said again, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Colossians talks about Christ again being seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1 puts it this way says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you read verses, Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3, it carries this idea that this one who is coming, he's going to be a king, he's going to rule. I'm going to go back to Psalm 110 now. It says in verse 2, The Lord sends from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This psalm is saying that this one who David calls my Lord, he's going to rule. He's going to reign. He is seated at the right hand of God. Yes, he comes through the lineage of David, but we know that Jesus Christ was fully man, but before he was fully man, he was fully God. God the Son, who has always existed. That is how David can say about someone who is going to be born hundreds of years later, this one who is not even born yet, he calls him Lord. Because he's the king. He is the one who is going to rule. Now, not only that, and you see that it's quoted time and time again in, in the New Testament. It is the New Testament's favorite psalm to quote. This idea of the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make my enemies your footstool. In this world where we live, where history shows us that a lot of history is all about who's in charge. People all over the world right now are still trying to figure out who owns this territory, who owns that territory, who's the most powerful. We fight wars, we, we, uh, many of us have, are gainfully employed because we have to prepare for those kinds of things all the time. In a world where that's happened throughout history and throughout time, this text is saying there's coming a day when this king, it doesn't matter who they are, if they're his enemies, he's going to reign and he's going to rule. That gives us hope as God's people. If we belong to Christ, we're already on the winning side. Number two. I'll give you the next slide. The next slide is Christ the priest. Christ the priest. So let's go back and look at verse 4 and let's look at this mysterious character. Verse 4. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. And he says, you are, who's the you? It's the same one. It's Jesus. It's the same Lord. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek shows up in Genesis. He shows up here and he shows up in Hebrews. And I started thinking, I said, does he show up anywhere else outside of Scripture? And I found a place When they found the Qumran scrolls in the 1940s, which was the if you may refer to them as the Dead Sea Scrolls, as they dug through those scrolls, guess what they found out? That that community from, oh, about two to three hundred B.C. had some things to say about Melchizedek, too. Those things were not scripture. We know that. But we do know that there was some interest in who this character was. And when you read Hebrews, which we're going to read part of in just a minute, you see a little bit more about Melchizedek. Very simply, what the Bible says about this figure is that he is a priest. He's not a priest like Aaron. Aaron comes along later with Moses and the sacrificial system. Melchizedek seems to be outside of the realm of that. I want you to turn, uh, if you have your Bibles, or I'll simply read it to you to Genesis 14 so we can get the backstory on this figure that just sort of pops up in the middle of Genesis. Let me share with you what's going on. I went back and read it uh, last week just just to refresh my memory. Lot, remember, had parted ways with Abraham. Lot, Abraham said, I tell you what, you remember, you, you pick whatever you want, I'll go the other way because we're so big. Lot goes his own way. Before the Sodom and Gomorrah incident with Lot and his wife turned into a pillar of salt, this is before that. Lot got captured by a king. Abraham basically sets up a rescue mission. The rescue mission involves Abraham sending, this blows my mind, 320 of his own trained men, it says. So basically, Abraham has his own army. He had enough people to send 315 people out to do a rescue mission. This is this is classic troop leading procedures. If you go back and read it, if you want to read some some military stuff in the Bible, it says under uh, he does it at night. So under period of darkness, it says that Abraham sends his 315 men out. He's essentially a battalion commander calling the shots, making things happen. He goes in under period of darkness. He overtakes the enemy, uses the element of surprise with his 300 plus men, and he rescues lot and he gets him back. It's a great story. It's in Genesis 14. I encourage you to check it out. Now, I'm going to start reading in verse 16. So after this military operation, you know, Abraham wins, he's the good guy, bad guys lose, we get our guy back, right? We got him back. Verse 16, here's what happens. Then he, that is Abraham, he brought back all the possessions. So not only did he get Lot, he got all the stuff they stole. He got it all back. He also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is a, he lost no one. These guys were good. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, that was the bad guy, and in the kings who were with him, now check this out, the king of Sodom went to meet him at the valley of Sheva. Verse 18, out of nowhere, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, Which, by the way, if you translate it, it kind of ties to Jerusalem, it seems like. Salem meaning peace. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had. And that's it. Then the story just keeps plugging along with Abraham. That's all you get about Melchizedek. Now, we have to look at Hebrews to get sort of the rest of the story. When you read Hebrews, the author of Hebrews takes about three chapters to make the point that Jesus' priesthood is like Melchizedek's, more so than it is like Levi's. And you could say it this way, this priesthood that is in the type of Melchizedek is greater than the Levitic because Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And it makes sense to say that the one who gives the blessing is greater than the one who receives the blessing. Abraham paid him a tithe, showing him homage, maybe superiority, certainly some sort of one who is greater. When you read through the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look through a couple of scriptures this morning, you find out that he is making the point that the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament was all about making these sacrifices that you continually had to make. He quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, saying that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, making the point that this priest... This sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice. There's no need for any other sacrifices because this priest who, as we know, died on the cross on our behalf, who was an advocate for us, he made it such that he is a priest forever. Now, to see this in its, in its entirety, I want to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And I think I give you these uh, texts as well. I'm just going to simply read a few of them uh, to you. I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and read to you verse 14 and 15 so that you can hear what he says about Jesus. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are without sin. This priest is a priest who can advocate for us because he has been there, because the Bible teaches us that the Word became flesh. If you skip over to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, I want to read that to you. It talks about Melchizedek. It says, "In being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation, that is Christ, to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, at this point, you may be asking, well, who was Melchizedek exactly? Well, I haven't told you yet because I really don't know. There are a couple of options that scholars say. Some people think that Melchizedek was simply Christ himself in a pre-incarnate state, that this was the second person of the Trinity who showed up to Abraham. It could be. It could simply be that Melchizedek was, in fact, a priest of God that God just simply used to point to Jesus. I don't know. If you pin me down, I still really don't know. Here's what I do know, though. I do know that this passage is using the story of Melchizedek. And taking that truth to say, do you see who Melchizedek was in the sense that he was the high priest of God who Abraham spoke with? You see Psalm 110 talking about it. He's making the point that this high priest that we have, Jesus Christ, for those of us who are his, he's our high priest. He's not like the ones who you have to keep doing it. Hebrews says in one place that... By the blood of animals, it's impossible to forgive sins. This priest is one who made a sacrifice once and for all. That's the point. This priest has paid it all for us. I want to read uh, another piece uh, to you. If you look at verse uh, Hebrews chapter 6, I'll read one more verse to you where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf and having become a high priest forever, the key word being forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we can keep reading and keep reading. And Hebrews is interesting. He says the same thing about 15 different ways to basically say the same thing. This Jesus is a priest who can sympathize with us. He's a priest who who has gone before us. He's a priest who can do something about our need of salvation. He is our advocate. And that is what Hebrews time and time and time again, when it quotes Psalm 110, it is making the point that this priest is one who has gone on our behalf. His sacrifice is eternal. We don't have to go and do something else. That's why salvation, the Bible says, is a free gift of God. It's not so much that, that, well, we trust God. Well, now if you go jump through these hoops over here, then you're really saved that's not how it works. As the hymn we sing sometimes says, Jesus paid it what? He paid it all. There's nothing else to be done. There's nothing else to be done because Jesus has done the work for us on the cross. It is our faith in Christ when we trust in him. He saves us from our sins. He forgives us for our unrighteousness because he is a priest who has gone on our behalf. Now, through this, Jesus, our priest, he's an advocate. But I also want to point this out. If you go back to Psalm 110, which I want, to, I want to show you, he's also, for those who are his enemies, he's an adversary. If you go back and look at Psalm 110, we've looked at verse 4, we've looked at it very carefully. But look at the rest of the chapter. In verse 5, it says that he will, he, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. It says he's going to judge among the nations in verse 6. It says he'll fill the nations with dead corpses. Th- this is not the kind of stuff you hear in a little children's Sunday school class usually, right? This is not the, this is not the kind of stuff we, we advertise our churches with. Come to church because God's going to fill the, fill the place with dead corpses. No, but this is a fact. Keep reading. He says the works, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 6, he'll execute judgment. He's going to shatter chiefs. He'll drink from the book brook, by the way, and he'll lift up his head. The enemies of God are going to be destroyed, is what this passage is saying. I can't help but think of Philippians chapter uh, 2 when I read that, where it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, whether on earth or under the earth, in heaven or wherever, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This passage is saying two things about him being a priest. He's our advocate for those who know him, but for those who are his enemies, he's also an adversary. This king and this priest, it's interesting that this passage puts those two things together. I want to share with you that the fact that he is king shows his power The fact that he is priest shows his action, or maybe in many ways shows his heart, because a priest is an advocate. A priest is one who goes over and beyond to help. I was thinking about those two things when I think about working here in this hospital the two things you you want to have in anybody who's helping take care of you physically is you want somebody who knows what they're doing, who has the power, authority and skill to do it, and you want somebody who cares about you. Yes. I care about you, but there's a whole lot of medical stuff you do really don't want me to do. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the power. I'll get you what you need. I'll I'll grab whoever's on the on the floor as I'm working, but Oh, I, I care about you tremendously. I'll do anything I can for you. But certain things I don't have the knowledge for. But this is king and priest combination tells us a lot about who God is. I couldn't help but think about these um, AT&T commercials that they just... I think they're hilarious. He, there's a there's a whole string of them that's kind of come out, and and one of them is a he's a doctor and he's about to do surgery and they're very nervous and the doc and she says oh yeah he's he's around he's he's one of our doctors was any good he's okay he come, he comes in the door and he says I just got reinstated you know like reinstated with his medical degree and stuff and there's a there's another one where a babysitter uh, they're, they're gonna get this girl to babysit their kids and the and the babysitter comes in and she doesn't know the kid's name she doesn't know allergies and. And she says, yeah, they'll, they'll be in bed by one in the morning and they're like, no, no, our bedtime's uh, nine. And she says, aren't you just a little strict and all this kind of stuff. And my, I think my favorite is the tattoo artist and the guy sitting there in the chair. And this guy says, uh, hey, d- just relax. I'm, I'm one of the tattoo artists here in the city. Don't you mean one of the best? Nah. And he tries to, hey, shouldn't you draw it first? And shouldn't you draw the tattoo first? And the guy says, hey, stay in your lane, bro. <laughs> that commercial, of course at and I guess, is trying to say we care about you and we know what we're doing. That's what we have in Christ. We have this one who loves us, who has done something on our behalf. But we also have one who has the power to do something for us, do something for us. And as I think about that, my question is this. What kind of Messiah do we want? As I think about this passage and I think about the responses to Jesus over the years, it's interesting to me. Remember back in the Old Testament when the judges ruled, but God ruled the nation of Israel, what do they want? We want a king. And that didn't work out all that great for them in some ways. It's also interesting that in Psalm 110, you kind of get this Messiah who is conquering And this Messiah is going to conquer one day, but we know it's going to be in the second coming. If you look at the time period just before Jesus came on the scene and came to earth, the popular view of the day is we want a Messiah who's going to conquer, who's going to rule. Rome's oppressive to us and we need to be freed from all that. And then Jesus comes along and he's the suffering servant. They didn't want that. It's interesting to me. The Bible says in John that Jesus came to his own and his own uh, didn't receive him. And now it's interesting that Jesus has died. He's risen. He's ascended to heaven. And now we're waiting for him to come again. And nothing's really changed. We look around and we see people who don't want to hear about a Messiah who's going to judge. We don't want to think about a God to whom we're accountable. And that's why I close with that question What kind of Messiah do we want? When we read this passage, what I gather, the most quoted New Testament quotes of Psalms right here, what I gather is Jesus is who he is, regardless of what you or I think about what we may like for him to be. I want to follow the Jesus of the Bible. I hope and pray that we're not interested in making a God or a Jesus in our own image, but that we're much more interested in looking at our king and our priest and saying, God, make me more like you. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, You are the Lord, as David said as he penned this song, And how we, Heavenly Father, have this incredible privilege of knowing the rest of the story. We know how full that passage is of truth, that you are our Lord. That you are our priest, the priest forever, the priest who made the sacrifice once and for all. God, I pray for us as your people that we would not strive so much to think of you the way we would like to think of you, but God, that we would think of you as our priest and king and that we would say, God, how can we obey you? How can our lives be made more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ? God, I pray this week that we would remember you're our priest, you're our king. You have all the power, but what a joy it is to know that you also care about us. God, it is true. Jesus, you love us. This we know because the Bible tells us so. God, go with us.